and welcome to the third episode of the 2023 BMJ Sexually Transmitted Infectious Diseases podcast. I am Fabiola Martin, the BMJ STI podcast editor. I'm also a sexual health specialist based in Australia and I lecture at the School of Public Health of the University of Queensland. In honor of the World Hepatitis Day, today we focus on the hepatitis B virus, in short HPV, a virus that can be transmitted through contact with infected blood and from mother to child during labor. HPV can also be transmitted sexually, it infects liver cells and causes both acute and chronic infections which can be severe. Since HPV was discovered in 1965, we have made great progress in reducing the burden of infection and disease through prevention and antiviral treatment, but much is left to do. You may already know that World Health Organization has called for an enhanced effort to improve the management of HPV worldwide and has suggested four main pathways. Increasing awareness of HPV infection among both the public and healthcare professionals, promoting the use of prevention strategies, including vaccination, screening of blood donations, and safe use of needles in healthcare settings, expanding access to diagnosis and care for those with chronic infection, and finally, improving surveillance, research, and data collection. So today I will discuss these topics with a focus on the European region with three amazing experts, starting with Professor Anna Maria Giretti, Erika Duffel, and then finally Professor Simon de Lucien. Well, Anna Maria, welcome and thank you for making time for us. If I could start with you, I really like it if you could tell us a little bit about your amazing scope of work. Thank you, Fabiola, and um, hello, everybody. I'm editor-in-chief of the SDI Journal, who's hosting this um, podcast. I'm also a clinician and a researcher, and I specialize in virology. I'm based in Rome and in London, and my affiliations include the Fondazione PTV of University of Rome, Tour Vergata, the North Middlesex University Hospital in London, and King's College, London. Fantastic. Thank you. And Erica, could you tell us a little bit about your amazing work? Hello, Fabiola. Hello, everyone. So I'm a public health physician. I'm specialised in communicable disease control. I work at the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control in Stockholm in uh, Sweden. And I work mostly uh, in the area of hepatitis. Thank you so much. And now to Simon. Hello, Simon. Please kindly let us know a little bit about your amazing work. Thank you. I'm a senior academic GP with research interests in clinical informatics and health outcomes. I'm based at the Nuffield Department of Primary Health Sciences at the University of Oxford uh, in the UK. And also uh, director of the Royal College of GPs Research and Surveillance Centre. The RSC is one of Europe's oldest primary care sentinel systems, and we're very grateful to our expanding network of practices who share pseudonymized data with us. This data sharing is greatly appreciated, and these data were used for the, one of the studies that's being talked about on this podcast. Thank you so much, Simon, for this good introduction. If I could now start with our discussion. Anna Maria, when 
we look at the problem at hand, could you please first outline for our listeners the current global HPV scenario? Yes, we can start with the successes. We have powerful vaccines that can prevent HPV infection. We have universal vaccination programs that have been hugely successful. We have vaccine coverage reaching a remarkable 90% among young children. And this is a group that is especially vulnerable to developing chronic infection if exposed to HPV. Thanks to these programs, prevalence among children below five years of age has fallen to levels well below 1%. So really safeguarding their future health. With no stopping a vaccination alone, we have a rigorous screening of blood donation, the safe use of needles in healthcare settings, and in many places also we have programs for you know, ensuring safe use of needles in the context of injecting drug use, for example. But overall, we see that the screening of blood donations and the safe use of needles in healthcare settings are um, widely implemented globally and they ensure additional protection. We also have um, effective and safe antiviral therapy for those who have chronic HPV infection. And antiviral therapy can suppress the virus, can prevent transmission, and can also protect the uh, person from developing progressive liver disease. However, it's important to point out at the same time that antiviral therapy rarely cures the infection and must be taken for life. But overall, these measures, vaccination, infection control, antiviral therapy, are progressively reducing the burden of HPV infections in the population, making significant strides in safeguarding public health. But there are some key challenges. For instance, we must increase the number of children receiving their first vaccine dose at birth in areas where we have a high risk of mother-to-child transmission so that we can ensure maximal protection for the children. We also need to make people aware that it's never too late to seek protection via vaccination. Even if they miss childhood vaccination, many adults can still benefit from getting vaccinated uh, later in, in life. At, at the policy formulation level, of course, we need to implement comprehensive adult vaccination programs for those who remain at risk. And of course, we also need to be able to identify them so that we may offer vaccination. HPV transmission persists worldwide. There are about 1.5 million new infections estimated to occur every year around the world. And sexual contact, as you said, Fabiola, sexual contact plays a significant role in adult infections. And yet many people are not aware of this. But also importantly, there are an estimated 296 million people globally who have already acquired HPV and are living with chronic HPV infection. Now, what is really concerning is that only about 10% of these 296 million people actually have been diagnosed, highlighting you know, the great need that we have for increasing awareness, increasing testing, increasing diagnosis. And even among those diagnosed, only a third have access to antiviral therapy. So this is a worrisome scenario and it calls for immediate attention and action. Thank you so much, Anna Maria. This is um, yeah, very interesting and the size of the problem is huge. But then, you know, there are so many viruses out there. Why 
do you think, you know, is HPV a worry? What are the main complications of having chronic HPV infection? Yeah, we can identify two levels of complications, right? So, of course, acute infection per se can be quite severe, can be fulminant, especially in adults. It can actually kill very rapidly. And in some studies, we see that acute HPV infection ranked as the second most common cause of liver failure right after the paracetamol overdose. And in this context, in these situations, urgent liver transplants are the only thing which is, you know, really offers a life-saving intervention for these critical cases. Now, coming to chronic infection, what it does is that it can cause progressive scarring of the liver tissue, what we call cirrhosis, and this can slowly then result also in liver failure. Uh, basically, the liver stops working. But there is also an additional, there is an additional darker side to HPV. HPV is an oncogenic virus. So it's a virus that can directly cause cancer and it's an important cause of liver cancer. Thus, individuals with chronic HPV infection who are left undiagnosed, are diagnosed late, or are left untreated if diagnosed, face the threat of cirrhosis and liver cancer. And what's really important to emphasize, I think, is that symptoms of chronic HPV infection typically appear quite late in the disease course and cannot be relied upon to ensure an early diagnosis. So we must be proactive in offering screening tests to catch the infection in time. Thank you so much and a special thanks for pointing out the risks of having a, an acute uh, and fulminant liver disease with HPV infection. And yeah, so if there is a delay in, in the complications, then you need to diagnose HPV early. So therefore, I wonder if you could tell us, you know, a little bit about how we can screen better or how do we even screen for HPV? Yeah, so we have two uh, strategies, essentially, that use very simple blood tests widely available. First, we have one type of screening test that looks for antibodies, so an immune response to the virus. Those are helpful because they can tell us if someone is not immune to HPV and therefore may benefit for vaccination. And then we have a test that looks for uh, the infection itself. And what it does is that it looks for a viral protein, which we call surface antigen, hepatitis B surface antigen. And this is what basically is used to identify the presence of the infection. So it's fairly easy to test. We just have to think and do it and more about it later in this podcast. But thanks for this concise summary. There is no question. There's a lot of work ahead of us. So Erica, as our expert epidemiologist today, could you please inform us about the epidemiology of this virus, focusing on Europe? How reliable are the data that we have at hand? Yes, yeah, so... I mean, vaccination has had a dramatic effect on the epidemiological situation of hepatitis B in Europe. We see this from the data that we collect at ECDC on acute hepatitis B notifications. And whilst we know that this data, the notification data, is a, uh, there is underreporting, this data does provide a proxy, for instance. And what we've seen is a steady decline in acute cases over time, with instance now at a very low level. And we see just over a thousand cases reported from across the 30 countries in the European Union and um, European Economic Area each year. 
And whilst uh, instance is now uh, at a very low level, and the European Union is actually considered a region of low endemicity, hepatitis B is still a public health problem. And our estimates indicate that there are around three and a half million people who are chronically infected with hepatitis B across the region. And what we see is that the burden really varies quite considerably across countries, sort of ranging from a prevalence of chronic infection in the general population of uh, 0.1% in Ireland to over 4% in Romania. And we see the prevalence highest among countries in the southern and eastern parts of the region. And in the sort of wider WHO region, so this involves 53 countries extending out to and including Russia, it's estimated that there are 14 million people who are chronically infected with hepatitis B. And several of the countries in the eastern part of the region have intermediate or high prevalence, that, that's prevalence over 2%. And most of the people who are chronically infected with hepatitis B are adults. These uh, are uh, individuals who were infected before the vaccine became widely available in the 1990s. And we see prevalence highest amongst certain population groups, such as people who inject drugs, people in prison, men who have sex with men. And these are the groups known to have high levels of transmission of infection. And there's a high burden of infection as well among some population groups born in high endemicity countries outside the region, with most of these individuals probably infected at birth from their mother. In terms of mortality, the deaths from hepatocellular carcinoma uh, related to viral hepatitis are continuing to increase across the region. And this is a trend that is seen globally. And from the data that we collect from uh, countries across the region for monitoring progress towards the elimination targets, we can see that a large number of people with chronic hepatitis B remain undiagnosed. And the estimates from WHO indicating that, you know, only around one in five persons with chronic infection know their status. And the data that we collect at ECDC indicate that in some countries, up to 40% of newly diagnosed cases have cirrhosis or hepatocellular carcinoma at the time of diagnosis. So we're diagnosing these cases too late. And in terms of reliability of the data, some countries have made good progress in carefully understanding their epidemic and accurately monitoring responses. But Many countries really lack robust and up-to-date data. And we see great variation in the methodological approaches used to gather data. So getting better, more accurate data is a real priority. And a large part of the work that we do at ECDC is actually supporting countries in improving their data sources. Thank you so much. So the burden is, is big, really. And I wonder what the barriers are to, you know, offer widespread screening for HPV, especially if it's so easy to test for. So, you know, in your opinion, how could we overcome these barriers? What are the barriers and how could we overcome the, them in Europe? So I see many barriers to screening across the region, and these really vary quite considerably across countries. And we can think of these barriers at the sort of community um, or individual level, at the professional level and at the system level. And in terms of barriers at the community or individual level, one of the biggest challenges everywhere is the lack of knowledge and awareness around hepatitis B. Access remains a barrier in some countries, 
with testing services often located far away from the individual and the often restricted opening hours. There's sometimes language barriers. And in some countries, testing, we know that testing is not free for the user. Stigma is still an issue across the region, and not just relating to hepatitis, but also around the population groups who are disproportionately affected. So people who inject drugs, people in prison and migrant populations. At the professional level, we see poor knowledge and awareness around hepatitis as well. And other barriers relate to resources with insufficient staffing to provide services, with staff facing many competing priorities. And we really saw this exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic. At the system level, there are barriers around the data, um, lack of data on the epidemiological situation to inform planning, the lack of policies for screening of key populations, such as people who inject drugs, people in prison. And in some countries, we know that there are local policies that tests can only be performed by medical staff or be provided at specialist centres. And there's often a lack of coordination uh, across healthcare structures, which is really exacerbated by a lack of electronic patient records in countries and a poor flow of data. And this makes it really difficult for staff to find the individuals who need to be tested. In terms of what what should be done to scale up testing and reduce the numbers who are undiagnosed across Europe, I think it's important to note that there is no one-size-fits-all. So tailoring to the local situation is important. So having a good understanding of the local epidemiology is critical. Um, You need to assess which groups or cohorts of the population need targeting. You also need information on how the services are actually delivered to understand where the gaps are and what barriers uh, exist. It's also important that there is universal, accessible healthcare that includes free, voluntary and non-stigmatising testing with appropriate linkage to care. And that tests where possible are delivered near to the individual through sort of outreach or community-based testing integrated with other services, such as harm reduction services for people who inject drugs or or HIV services, where relevant. And um, consideration should be given to sort of opt-out testing in some situations, which can help remove some of the stigma that's often associated with targeted screening initiatives. So innovations such as rapid diagnostic tests and dry blood spot testing can also uh, help eliminate barriers and can help scale up screening and could also save time linking individuals to care much more quickly. And in relation to case finding among different population groups sort of most affected by hepatitis B, many of which are marginalised populations, there needs to be greater consideration to the diversity of their needs and the development of sensitive and tailored case finding initiatives. And what is important is that we use peers and community-based organisations, which are really critical in not only helping to design and provide such services, but also increasing community awareness and knowledge through sort of education as well. And I just want to sort of finish by saying that sort of many of the elements that I just mentioned will be recommended by uh, the World Health Organization in their forthcoming update of their hepatitis B guidance. This is going to focus on a simplification of diagnostic pathways and a move towards uh, decentralization of services with testing in the community using rapid testing and other interventions to maximize sort of engagement in services.
Thank you, Erika, for this very, um, you know, detailed summary of how different problems could be addressed. And I specifically welcome any simplification and decentralization, which would be extremely important here in Australia. So if I talk to Anna Maria now again and seek your expert input here, Anna Maria, about what is going on in UK, what is the situation there? Yes, screening for the infection takes place at three levels. There is universal screening within antenatal care with very high uptake, above 99%. There is also screening targeted to specific indicators that were released by the National Institute for Clinical Excellence in 2013 to be implemented across the healthcare sector. And more recently, there is a program of opt-out screening in emergency departments, which mainly targets HIV infection in areas of high prevalence, but often in many settings includes also hepatitis B and hepatitis C testing. Now, NICE screening indicators include several uh, indicators, as I said, several factors that should trigger a test. They include being born or brought up in a country uh, with high prevalence of the um, infection, where high prevalence is a level of at least 2% in the general population um, having chronic infection. Also, having a history of either current or past injecting drug use, uh, being someone who's in close contact with people living with hepatitis B infection, so for instance, in a household setting, also, people who are in prison or in residential care should be offered the testing. And uh, men who have sex with men, people with multiple sexual partners, and also those diagnosed with uh, sexually transmitted infections. So these are all indicators that should trigger testing in the healthcare setting. The estimated prevalence of chronic HPV infection in England is 0.45%, so it's four to five people with the infection, with chronic infection for each 1,000 people. But it's important to highlight that the estimate varies by region and also within communities, and in fact may not fully account for a substantial underdiagnosis. Yeah, thank you. And um, when I'm listening to you both and from my own understanding, we must suspect that not all people living with hepatitis B virus are being diagnosed. So despite these guidelines, um, may I ask why you think this is the case? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a global problem and it's also a problem in the United Kingdom. Um, Simon and I recently published a study that I think illustrates this point well. Uh, we explored data collected through the Royal College of General Practitioners Research and Surveillance Centre. This is a collaboration with the University of Oxford and the UK Health Security Agency. The centre collects, monitors um, data in a confidential manner, of course, from a large network of general practices across all regions of England. And these practices, these participating practices are recruited to be nationally representative. We retrieve data from 419 practices and nearly 7 million people. So this was um, an ethnically diverse population, largely urban, distributed across England and also across socioeconomic strata. 
and the time frame of the data was 2008 to 2019. So what we found was that nearly 3%, oh, just over 190,000 people, had received a test, had a record of having received a test for the hepatitis B surface antigen, so the marker of the infection. The proportion of people tested increased between 2008 and 2014, perhaps reflecting the release of the NICE guidance about uh, testing indicators, but then remained essentially stable in the subsequent years. So testing was also not equally distributed across regions of England, so it was more common in London and in the south of England, followed by the north of England, and with fewer tests, the Midlands and east of England. Also, testing was more common among people with recorded screening indicators and also among people that were from minority ethnic groups. But it's important to highlight that even among people that had recorded uh, screening indicators, testing was far from complete. So, for example, let's take people who had uh, recorded uh, history of being in close contact with someone living with hepatitis B. In this group, we found the highest likelihood of a test for hepatitis B. The proportion tested was 39%, but it was only, you know, was less than half, basically, that you know, was, was observed in this group. Um, among people with other screening indicators, for example, men who have sex with men, people with a history of injecting drug use, people with a diagnosis of sexually transmitted infection, so people that had other uh, nice uh, screening indicators, then the proportion tested was at best 19%, and usually between 6 and 19%. This is, of course, relying on recorded data, and we need to acknowledge potential pitfalls. And the pitfalls are related to incomplete linkage between service providers. So, for example, outside of general practice, testing for hepatitis B may take place in drug services, in sexual health services, and so forth. So this means that, of course, each service may assume the other is testing and thus may not offer the test. In any case, the testing results may not transfer across. And so obviously improving linkage between data set is a clear need. Wow. Thank you, Anna Maria. This was very interesting. And as you already alluded to, a lot of work ahead of us uh, to get this all sorted. And Simon, thank you again for joining us today. And congratulations to you and Anna Maria's publication. Well, in your opinion, you know, as a specialist in general practice, what are the barriers to screening more patients in general practice? There are several barriers I'd like to talk about. First of all, are the general pressures on primary care. And these pressures on primary care are manifesting themselves as a crisis in recruitment and retention. My GP colleagues are very efficient in screening and testing when it's made part of their contract or incentive schemes and are properly uh, funded. I think GPs appropriately briefed and prepared would be really good at targeting the best people to test. And it's possible that things like machine learning could help us. So, for example, people with abnormal LFTs, 
uh, people who are current or previous IV drugs users. And these sometimes emerge as, uh, as part of mental health reviews. People who've had sexually transmitted in infections should also be encouraged to get a hepatitis screen. And one of the things we're noticing is how attitudes about uh, sharing information about sexual health, uh, people seem much more open about. And in this context, we can perhaps be testing more. One of the things I was pleased to see in our study was there is increased uh, testing and greater testing of people with more risk factors and that there was a, a greater amount of testing over the period of the study. However, one of the big barriers I need to uh, emphasise is that funding remains inadequate and we really should be thinking about doing more possibly something similar to the opt-out testing that happens successfully in emergency departments. And lastly, a really important thing is that GP data are kept very confidential. In the UK, there's a memorandum of understanding between the Home Office and the NHS over migrant health, and this really had a negative uh, impact, we believe, on migrants' health-seeking behaviour and their relationship with clinicians. And this is the sort of thing we shouldn't do. Thank you so much, Simon, for this very good summary of um, the obstacles that you face and also some solutions. In your study of primary care records, certain populations were found to be at increased risk of hepatitis B infection. Would you be able to elaborate a little bit on your findings, please? Well, just over 8,000 people had a record of a positive hepatitis B surface antigen test, so had the infection. Uh, this gives an overall prevalence of HBV infection of 0.12% in our population. So that's about one in every 830 people had the infection. Geographically, we, the infection was more common in people attending uh, general practitioners in London and in the most deprived neighbourhoods uh, of England. Interestingly, other studies have found rates of liver cancer are also higher in areas of greater uh, socioeconomic deprivation. By population, we found the infection to be more common among people from all the ethnic minority groups, and predictably, infection is more common in those are the um, National Institute for Care Excellence in the UK uh, gives us screening indicators. To give a couple of examples of those, the prevalence of infection was just above 1%, 1 in 100 of men who have sex with men or people with a history of injecting drug use. Uh, interestingly, nearly 3% among those in close contact with someone with hepatitis B also had the infection. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm sure there's even more in your study and uh, those who have read your publication will be aware of that. Thank you, Simon. We are coming to the end of our episode, but just out of curiosity. Anna Maria, in your opinion, as an expert clinical virologist, is there an intersection between hepatitis B, 
and other STIs and blood-borne infections. Yes, in our study of general practice, we found that HPV infection was significantly more common among people who had a diagnosis of hepatitis C or HIV. And this was expected um, because there are shared routes of transmission among these three viruses. What was an interesting finding was that the independent association that we found between having the record of a positive hepatitis B test, uh, surface test, surface antigen test, and um, having also a diagnosis of syphilis. Now, having a diagnosis of syphilis increased by just over sixfold the likelihood of also having hepatitis B. And this was uh, the case also after we corrected for potential confounders, such as age, gender, ethnicity, location, other risk factors for hepatitis B uh, infection. So, there is a strong association between syphilis and hepatitis B. And interestingly, this is a unique association that was not detected between hepatitis B and other STIs, such as gonorrhea or genital herpes, for example. Thank you, Anna Maria. So listening to Anna Maria, Simon, may I ask you, what are the implications of your research findings? We propose as one starting point, that people with diagnosis of syphilis should be tested for HBV if they haven't been tested uh, previously, and this should be done regardless of their age, gender, and sexual orientation. These are things that we've discussed uh, with specialist society, and we're glad to say the British Association for Sexual Health and HIV will be incorporating this evidence into their syphilis guidelines. Thank you all for this very insightful conversation. We have come to the end of our podcast. But before I say goodbye to you and our listeners, could I ask you for one short take-home message so that we can focus on the elimination of HPV in the European region? Erika, if I could start with you, what would be your uh, take-home message for us today? Well, I would say that the lack of good data and the failures in clearly articulating data that are available to the policymakers to secure strong political commitment remain major barriers to the effective scale-up of services across the region. So my main takeaway message is of the importance of us all working together clinicians, public health professionals and civil society to get better epidemiological and monitoring data on the local situation and then to use this data to ensure that this data is then used as information for action. And finally, I I want to note that um, hepatitis B has received a lot less attention than hepatitis C in recent years, in spite of having a greater disease burden This is undoubtedly related to the enormously effective direct-acting antivirals that have revolutionised the therapeutic landscape for hepatitis C. But I now feel optimistic that the balance is shifting and I hope that we can use the opportunity of this World Hepatitis Day and the forthcoming update to the WHO guidance to refocus efforts onto hepatitis B and to ensure that people who are infected are diagnosed in a timely way and linked to care. Thank you. And Anna Maria, do you have a short take-home message for us? Yes, three key points, I will say. 
Increasing awareness is crucial. We must promote wider screening and we must work to remove persisting stigma. So we must work to foster an environment where practitioners feel empowered to offer testing across a range of provisions and individuals feel safe to get tested. Thank you very much, Anna Maria. And now to Simon. Would you have a short message for us, please? Yes, uh, my short message is that we already have in primary care models where pathology test results trigger actions. For example, a cytology, uh, cervical cytology test can trigger a further test or investigation. And we think that similar pathways could be set up and implemented, for example, around hepatitis in the household or sexually transmitted illnesses that could trigger further targeted testing. Thank you all so very much for your time and effort. So here with me today were Dr. Erika Duffel, Public Health Physician at the European Centre of Disease Prevention and Control, ECDC in Stockholm, Sweden, Professor Anna-Maria Geretti, Clinical Virologist at University of Rome, Tor Vergata in Rome, Italy, and Chief Editor of BMJSDI, and Professor Simon de Lucinan, Senior Academic GP based at Nuffield Department of Primary Healthcare Science, University of Oxford in United Kingdom. And we honoured the World Hepatitis Day and all people that are living with chronic hepatitis infection by focusing on the hepatitis B virus, its epidemiology and available prevention strategies, particularly in general practice, by focusing on the findings of the recent BMJSDI publication on this very issue with the title Hepatitis B Virus Infection in General Practice Across England, an analysis of the Royal College of General Practitioners Research and Surveillance Centre Real World Database. And with this podcast, I also wish to announce a special issue of the BMJ STI journal titled Focus on Viral Hepatitis, which opens on World Hepatitis Day, 28th of July, 2023. And I wholeheartedly encourage you to submit your manuscript on this theme. Many thanks to our many attentive and passionate listeners for following us on your preferred listening app and on Twitter and Facebook. We look forward to receiving your comments. My special thanks also to our wonderful BMJ podcast team. We will be back again soon with another 2023 BMJ STI podcast episode. Please stay tuned in. And until then, goodbye and stay safe.